But I want to start this morning asking a question for you. Uh, Who here hates waiting? (laughs) Yeah, I think a lot of us hate waiting. It's just something that is, is just seems to be a part of of everyday life, but it's also one of the hardest things about life, at least that I've seen. You know, you have to go see the doctor and you have to wait at least 45 minutes before you're seen in his office, and then he sees you for 15 minutes and then you are gone. And so it just seems like that is just a huge waste of time. Another thing that we love to do is we love to wait at every single red light in the city of Yakima when we are in a hurry. It just seems that we are always hitting more red lights, we're always behind slower drivers, and we always have to wait to get to our destination. It always seems to happen right when we are in the middle of getting somewhere quickly. But it seems almost that waiting is an unavoidable part of life, right? Of course, those are just short moments that we wait, but we enter into longer periods of waiting that last weeks, Months and sometimes even years. I think of my own life when I got engaged to to my wife, Debbie. I felt like I entered into a period where the stress was high and time moved painfully slow. And uh, so as I look at just the eight months that I was engaged, it was the longest waiting period of my life especially since we got all of our wedding details figured out and planned within the first two months, and then we just waited. And it was not fun. (laughs) And so I found that the longer that the time went, uh, it was harder for me to stay patient, harder for me to stay focused. And it was, I was excited to get married, but it was also just painfully slow each and every day as we, we had to hurry up and wait. Of course, once my wedding day came, all of that waiting uh, leading up to the day faded away, and it was, I wasn't disappointed in that period of waiting, but looking back, I would not advise being engaged for a long period of time. It just drags on. But I do remember in that moment that I was thinking and I was remembering and I was hoping that once I got married, then all of my problems in my life is going to fade away. Let me be the first to say that is not true. Your circumstances changing does not provide a better life. But I know that I'm not alone in waiting sometimes for life to change and waiting for circumstances to change. I've heard people say over the years that once my life slows down, then, then I can focus. Then my circumstances can change that I can do things differently. Or even, once I graduate and get a job, then I will be able to have money, and then I'll be able to, 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 to buy all of the things that I need. We could keep looking at all of the different ways that we wait for our circumstances to change, and those are the things that we are, that we are hoping that our lives get better as a result. But at the heart of this, at the heart of waiting for our lives to change, is a longing to be delivered from something. We look to our relationships to deliver us from our deep-seated feelings of abandonment and isolation. We look to money to deliver, our, to, to, to deliver us from our feelings of not being secure, of, of not having safety in our life. We look to status as ways to deliver us from feelings of inadequacy. And so we wait 
on these things, these pursuits, where we are actively pursuing those things to find deliverance for our souls. At the end of the day, we are relying on ourselves for our peace and our happiness in our lives. And I think what's interesting is what we wait on shows what we have hope for. It doesn't matter what we're facing, that we all have this vague hope that our problems will go away when our circumstances change, when life gets better. And so we look to ourselves, we look to our circumstances for deliverance on whatever that we're facing. But what happens when the thing that we've been hoping to provide peace and happiness in our life only causes suffering, only causes frustration? The reality of the situation is that we live in a broken and a fallen world that is constantly under pressure of, of false hope and false deliverance. And in a lot of cases, we find our lives are worse because of a misapplied hope in someone or something that only lets us down. It's easy to find our broken lives and amidst the broken hopes that we have. That everything that we wait on demonstrates our false hope in our life, that we're going to be delivered in our, and our circumstances are going to change and life is going to be better. I think it's important for us to recognize that we need something more than ourselves. We need something more than our circumstances to bring true and lasting deliverance for our lives. This is why we've been in the sermon, our sermon series this summer has been through the book of Psalms. This has been written by real people experiencing real emotion amidst hardships and troubles. In many ways, they are people like us. They are having to wrestle with the same issues that we are facing today, only packaged differently. And Psalm 130 is no exception. We don't know who wrote this psalm, but we do know that he is writing from a place of intense grief and intense suffering. As you'll notice at the top of, of the heading, it's called a song of ascents. And this is a category of psalms between Psalm 120 and Psalm 134. And these psalms are believed to have been written for three specific occasions. The first occasion is priests would sing these songs as they were going up the steps to the temple preparing to make sacrifices for the people of Israel. The second occasion would be the people of Israel would be singing these songs as they are making their pilgrimage to Jerusalem three times a year, preparing their hearts for sacrifice, for worship. And then the third occasion that we see people singing this throughout history is the people of Israel sang these psalms as they were returning from uh, from exile in Babel, from Babylon. In all of these cases, the people of God are under the burden of sin, and they are deeply affected by the consequence of sins in their lives and in the lives of the people of God. He's saying these psalms, preparing their hearts for worship, reminding themselves of God's redemptive plan for his people. So as we look at the psalm, who is the psalm for? This psalm is for people who are in the midst of suffering. The psalm is for everyone who is burdened by sin, whether it be someone else's or whether it be our own. The psalm is for everyone who is waiting and longing for freedom from sin. The psalm is written for everyone from the, who's in the pit of despair with no way out. 
everyone who's looking for hope and longing for deliverance. The psalmist is just like us. He knew what it meant to be in despair. As he is experiencing the same pain and the same brokenness that we see in our lives. And he teaches us in just this first two verses that we can cry out to God in our despair. Likely, he was one of the exiles coming back from Babylon. And if you know anything about the history of Israel, that God sent the people of Israel into exile for 70 years to judge them for their sins. And while they were in Babylon, they were exposed to wickedness, they were exposed to unrighteousness, and God commanded them to be a blessing to the city. And he told them that he knew, that he loved them, that he had a plan for them, that he was going to bring them back into the land. So for the psalmist, he's dealing with the sins of his fathers that he's had to be be burdened by. He's burdened by the sin that he has seen in Babylon. He has seen God's judgment on his people. And so he's been in all of the places because of his sin and because of the sin of others. We don't have to look too far in our own lives to see how sin has completely devastated our lives, how it has devastated the lives of people around us. We live in a broken and a fallen world, and we are all under the weight and the burden of sin. So in that same place of suffering, psalmist says in verse 1, out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. The Hebrew word for depths is an image of being under water, of drowning, of chaos. He's unable to find solid ground for himself. He's unable to stand up. He's being tossed around. He has no control. He has no way of getting out of the present suffering caused by sin. We don't have to look far in our own lives to see we are under that same weight and that same burden of sins. Substance abuse, for example, is something that many are familiar with. We have seen people in our lives, we have, some of us have, have abused substances, but we know how this has negatively impacted people, how this has, we have, there's been devastation and destruction brought by this sin, this specific sin. But addiction is not the only thing in our lives that causes suffering. We suffer under the weight of sin at a global level. We don't have to turn on the news very far to see human suffering. We see that we see how people suffering under the sin, under the weight of sin, have a distant relationship with parents. How kids are suffering because of divorce. We see how trauma and on everybody's lives has reduced, has caused us to, to suffer. We all suffer suffer because of sin. And this is the reality of the life that we are in. All people are suffering under the weight of sin, whether it is ourself or someone else. And it's in our place of suffering where it's all too easy to blame other people for my suffering. It's easy to, to... look inward and play the what-if games. Well, what if I did this differently? Or what if this happened differently? Then I wouldn't be suffering. We we constantly shift the blame because we, we want other people to be accountable for their sin. In a lot of ways, 
we blame uh, we blame others we can, for just where we are in the state of our nation. We can go on social media and it doesn't take us long to see that we are casting blame for where we are right now. It's because of this group of people didn't do this or did this, or it's because of this people did this or not doing this. We are shifting the blame for our suffering, yet the psalmist being in the same place of suffering as us. He doesn't seek to blame others. He doesn't seek, seek to dwell on the what-ifs that led to his suffering. He musters the little energy that he has, and he cries out to God in verse 2. O Lord, hear my voice, let your ears be attentive to the, to the voice of my pleas for mercies. What the psalmist is teaching us is that we can cry out to God in our despair. We can cry out to God in our defeat, from the depths of our sin, from the depths of our suffering. And we can cry out to God when, for whatever that we're facing, knowing that he answers sinners and sufferers. There's nothing too big or too small for us to cry out to God, knowing that he answers us because he loves us. And so as we look at this, he's not just leaving us, just simply crying out to God in the midst of our burdens, but he is confident that God is going to listen to him because he knows that this is who God is going to be. He says, in, in the, he, he, t- he teaches us of God's great forgiveness for his people. He says in verse 3, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? It's not just sin of others that is causing suffering, but it is his own personal sin that is leading to his suffering. And he recognizes that all of this suffering in the world is a direct result of the sin, either personal or corporate. Every thought, every action, is completely tainted by the power of sin, and there's nothing that we can do to free or deliver ourselves from the bondage of sin. But he also recognizes that God is holy and that God is righteous and that he stands to judge sin and sinful actions and thoughts. God is a judge presiding over the state of the world. And with verse 3, the psalmist is showing us that God has the ability to count every wrong against him, whether we've done that intentionally or not. And so what he's saying is no one is able to stand before God because of our sin. Our sin condemns us in his presence. But at the heart of this verse, there's an implication that God constantly extends mercy and forgiveness to sinners and sufferers. It's in that conditional, that first word in verse 3, if you should mark iniquities. The implication is that God does not count our wrongs against him. That at the heart of God is a heart of mercy and a heart of forgiveness. God doesn't forgive because this is something that he does. This is who God is. He goes on in verse 4, but with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. The reality is, is that we expect God to bring the hammer against us in our, in our sin. We expect him to deal harshly with us when we sin. We expect God to tell us that our suffering is because of our own sinful actions and thoughts and, and lifestyle. But rather than dropping the judgment against us, 
He extends unfathomable uh, forgiveness of our sin. As we think about what forgiveness is, forgiveness is something that is foreign to our natural sinful state. The reality is, is that we tend to hold grudges against one another, including the jerks that cut us off as we are driving in the road. I've got, I've got five brothers, and growing up, there have been many fights amongst the five of us, or the six of us, sorry, six boys. Um, but one of those fights ended up causing me to get into a fight with one of my older brothers, and I ended up in the hospital because of that fight. After I got staples in my head, I was discharged, and I went home, and I dwelt on all the ways that my brother wronged me. I thought about all of the ways and all of the things that he had done in my life leading up to that, and I just kept telling myself, man, this guy's a big jerk. He needs to have his life reshaped. I felt like he needed to get what was coming to him. The more that I dwelt on how he had wronged me, the more that I held on to all, the, all of his sinfulness, and I was like, yeah, God needs to judge him. But the more I held on to my anger and the ways that I was wronged, the less that my life had any significant impact as a result. I dredged up, continued to dredge up, and I wanted uh, all the swift judgment against him. But what the Holy Spirit did was he began challenging me that if I have received God's unfathomable forgiveness, how can I hold my brother's sin against him? How could I continue recording all of his sin, all of his, his, who he is? But at the heart of this is God extending us forgiveness that regardless what we have done to him, he continues to forgive us. Regardless what we have done in our life, God offers us mercy and forgiveness. This isn't just something that God does. This is who God is. And God delights in forgiving and restoring his children. He is quick to forgive. He is quick to show us mercy because this is who he is. Even though many of us are suffering, we can, we can have complete certainty knowing that God is going to give uh, that he's going to forgive us, that he's going to deliver us. But this certainty allows us to have hope-filled waiting. As the psalmist deeply understood God's forgiveness, as he eagerly awaited God's deliverance from his current suffering, he says in verse 5, I will wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. You see, for the psalmist, waiting wasn't an inactive passive thing that he did, meaning he wasn't sitting on his couch twiddling his thumbs waiting for his life to change, but he was actively pursuing the Lord in his period of waiting. He's channeling every bit of energy that he has to focus on who God is, to wait on, on, on God's plan, but he also disciplines his body, his mind, to focus more on God and to, on the promises that God has in his word. In the place of tremendous suffering, he finds comfort and solace in God alone because he knows that God alone is able to save him from his suffering. 
English language does a poor job in defining what hope is. is I sure hope it's going to rain today as there's an element of doubt that is incorporated into that. I sure hope you feel better today. There's no certainty. It may happen, it may not. Yet the biblical idea of hope conveys this, a complete certainty in God's provision and deliverance. This is biblical hope, a complete certainty in God's provision and deliverance. We are given this idea in Hebrews 11 when it says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. Verse 3, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. Faith and hope go hand in hand with, with each other. But in spite of the suffering, in spite of the sin in our life, the psalmist has complete certainty that God is going to deliver him from his present pain. He has complete certainty that God is going to deliver him from the suffering caused by sin. And it's more the hope in God, less the deliverance. The deliverance is a byproduct of hoping in God. But he knows God is who he says he is, and God is going to deliver his people from all their afflictions. Though the thing about God's deliverance is it never looks like what we expect it to look like. But it is always what we need at a time that we need it. I think of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians when he's talking about the suffering from the thorn in the flesh and he prayed that God would take that away from him, which he doesn't. Instead, God tells him, my grace is sufficient for you. And so as we look at the life of Paul in that specific instance, he's suffering. He wants to be delivered from it and God does not take away his suffering, but instead God provides his presence for Paul. And so where Paul's life is magnified, the glory and the power of God, that God delivered Paul from his suffering not by taking away that suffering, but by giving him more of his presence. Sometimes this is what we see, how God works in our suffering. He doesn't always take away our sin or the suffering from sin. He takes away the sin, but not always the consequences. When he doesn't take away the consequences, he does give us more of himself. And the same is true for us today. He often gives us his presence and his strength amidst our suffering. And he provides deliverance through the Holy Spirit who resides in us. We are able to have God's strength amidst our suffering. We have been pulled out of the sin, the the consequences of sin, but not the, the things that sin causes. But in light of this hope, the psalmist entrusts himself to God. He says in verse 6, My soul waits for the Lord. You see, and he had tasted and he had seen God's unending mercy and forgiveness in his life. He had seen God deliver him from sin, from the bondage of sin. And so he had greater hope of a greater deliverance that was coming, and he was waiting for the Lord. He was waiting to see how the Lord would deliver him. It shows he had completely entrusted himself to God's plan for his life. Because of this, he had entrusted himself to God's plan, he had complete certainty in God's deliverance. He goes on, more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. 
This certainty of who God is, of God's deliverance, led him to be more confident, more certain of God and his deliverance than the fact that the sun would be rising in the morning. As I was thinking about it today, we take for granted the fact that the sun is going to rise every morning. We don't even think about what the sun is going to be doing when we go to bed. And he is more certain in God's deliverance than the fact that the sun is going to rise. This is what hope does. Hope in God. Hope in his deliverance. Hope that he's going to bring us out of our suffering. As we look at our lives, things may look bleak. We may see, in fact, that our lives sometimes will get worse before it gets better. But for the people who know God, for the people who know that his deliverance is coming, we know, according to Romans 8, that our present suffering pales in comparison to the glory that is coming. We know that God has not abandoned us. We know that God has not left us to our own devices, but that God cares for us, that God dwells among us, and our hope for tomorrow is the fact that God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Our hope cannot be in our circumstances. Our hope must be in who God says he is and what God plans to do, knowing that the waiting on the Lord is going to be difficult, but that hope in Christ, hope in God and his plan does not disappoint us for where we are today. We can have this complete certainty because God himself is full of love and redemption. This whole psalm has been a movement from present suffering to future deliverance, but it is all focused on God's deep love for his people. As we see in the last two verses, the psalmist shifts his focus from personal deliverance to God's plan to deliver his people. He says in verse 7, O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love. Because of what he had learned to trust God, he urges the people to put their hope in the, in, in the Lord, to experience the unfailing love of God. Just real quickly, we find these two, these two verses are the most important verses of this psalm as it ties everything to, together. But I want you to bracket verses 7 and 8 and write in your margins, this is what the Bible is about. From Genesis to Revelation, Psalm 130, 7 through 8, it encapsulates everything that the, the focus of the Bible is on. So if someone talks to you and says, what is the Bible about? You can point them to Psalm 130, 7 and 8, and you can say, this tells us of God's deep love for his people. It tells us of God's plan for, to deliver humanity from the bondage of sin. But it also tells us to who or how to live in light of who God is. Our hope in the Lord as, we, as he loves us, as he redeems his people. But as we look at these, that all forgiveness and all of God's mercy and all of his provision and all of his deliverance is rooted in a deep love for us, for his children. God is not abandoning us. He's not leaving us. 
but his love is probably one of the greatest characteristics of God. When we say that God is love, we say that everything that he does, everything that he thinks, everything that he says is done in love for humanity. As his children, we experience that love in far greater ways than people who are not his children, but he still continually shows the world mercy. But no better word describes God other than his steadfast love for us. As Dan mentioned a few weeks ago, just all of the, all of the nuances of steadfast love, it is undying, it is unending, it is, uh, it is loyal. There's, this is who God is for his children. But because of his great love for us, he sets to redeem his people from sin, as we see in verse 7. And with him is plentiful redemption. This is great news for all of us today. Because of the reality that we are all sinners, that we are all in need of grace, that we are all suffering under the weight of sin, we all need God's grace. We all need God's deliverance. Truthfully, like we all fail every day in many ways, in many different opportunities that we we sin, that we fail, that we err, just even in our daily lives. But I love this word, plentiful redemption. It means that God's redemption never runs out. There's never a limit on how many times that we can be redeemed and delivered from our sin. That God is constantly redeeming his people. And he does this because he is full of unending mercy, unwavering forgiveness, that we are able to be restored again and again and again. God's forgiveness is new every morning for those who wait for him, hoping on his deliverance. These are good words for us that no matter what we are facing, no matter what we are experiencing, when we put our hope in God, we find abundant deliverance for our lives. But in all the ways that God delivers his people as individuals throughout the stories of the Bible, all of the stories of redemption point us to his ultimate plan of redemption. As he says in verse 8, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. This isn't an if-then statement. If this happens, then this is going to happen. This isn't a conditional statement where it's, it may or may not happen based on our actions. But this is a promise declared to the people of God that as the psalmist waited on the Lord because he knew that he was going to redeem Israel from all of his sins. This is God's plan of redemption to redeem Israel from all his iniquities. And what is the redemption that he's talking about? This is the redemption that comes to the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. This is all of our redemption stories as we have been redeemed from sin, as we have seen God move and act in our life. All of our individualistic uh, redemption stories point us to the greatest redemption story of all time, and that is the cross of You see, Christ came to free the world from the bondage of sin. And this is the redemption that is the focus of the whole Bible. Everything that the, every, 
every believer in the Old Testament prepared the people to find redemption through the coming Messiah. They had a vague hope that the promise of future of a promise of future redemption, but they knew that God was going to dwell with His people. They knew that God was going to reign with His people. They believed that God was going to do away with the sting and the power and the consequence of sin. They didn't know how. So for us today, we are, or the, the Old Testament believers, they were living for the resurrection. For us today, we are living in light of the resurrection. All of the lie, all, everything that we have as Christians is all because of the resurrection. We have been redeemed from our sin. We have assurance that we are saved, that we are children of God. But the reality is, is that we are still suffering under the consequence of sin. And so we reflect back on the resurrection as we look forward. But this is one of the reasons why we come on Sunday morning to gather because Sunday morning is essential to the life of the believer as we are reminded through the various through the service of the power of the resurrection for the corporate body of Christ but not only that but we see how God has redeemed and has restored people's marriages how he has brought healing to families how he has broken the bonds of addiction in people's lives and he has redeemed them from that sin. We come and we celebrate the resurrection together as we worship God for his goodness, for his mercy, for his forgiveness, and ultimately for his love. And so as we are wrestling with the fact that we are redeemed from sin, we also struggle with the fact that we are still under the consequence of sin. And because of the fact that the resurrection happened, we can look forward and we can have hope, not in the future deliverance which is coming, but our hope is in the fact that Christ is coming back. And so as the Old Testament believers looked forward to the resurrection, we looked forward to the return of Christ. We've already been saved, but we still have the remnants of sin in our world. And so there's a day that we long for no more tears, no more mourning, no more suffering, no more death, no more loss of loved ones, no more destruction, but we long for a day when Christ will be dwelling with his people, where he will completely and totally redeem all people, all of his children from sin and the sorrow of the world. And so like the psalmist, we have complete certainty that Christ is coming back to redeem his people completely from sin. As we look at Psalm 130, it teaches us that no matter how low you may be in despair, wait on the Lord and you will be delivered. We are delivered not because we entrust ourselves to to our thoughts, to our circumstances, but we are delivered because we entrust our thoughts, our plans, and our very life to the person of Christ, believing that he alone will save us from the sin and the bondage in our world. We come to him by grace through faith, and we are made children of God. 
And we have that hope and that strength to face life. We have his strength to, to work through the, sto- the storms in our life and the calm in our life with complete certainty of God's deliverance, of God's character. So how do we wait on God today? I think it starts with us waiting on God in the midst of our suffering. It starts by us crying out to God in our despair, pleading to him for his mercy, knowing that he's going to respond to us. It means that we bring our worries, our anxieties, our frustrations, and we bring them before the Lord, as Peter says in 1 Peter 5, that we are to cast all our anxieties on him because he cares for you. Waiting on the Lord means that we cry out to him in despair and our suffering. But we are resting in the fact that God hears us and shows us unending mercy and forgiveness. The reality is that we cannot be delivered by our own strength. We cannot be delivered by thinking better, by doing better. We are only delivered by the by who Jesus is. So this morning, we're going to have time. We're going to sing a couple songs this morning, and there's going to be a time where we are going to have you, or we're going to allow you time just to cry out to the Lord, cry out from the depths of where you are, cry out to the Lord in your frustration. And so I want to encourage you just to take your anxieties, take your frustrations, take your fears, all before the Lord, because we know that he listens to those who whom he loves. But we also wait on the Lord, as the psalmist did, by putting our hope in the word of the Lord. It is necessary for us to trust and to see God's plan of, of, of salvation unfolding through Scripture. I want to encourage you to take 15 minutes every day this week and use that 15 minutes focusing on 1 Peter 1. This book, 1 Peter, was written to Christians who are suffering. How do we suffer and have hope in Jesus? So I want to encourage you to take that time this week and to reflect and meditate on the truths of God's word and finding one or two verses in 1 Peter 1 and memorizing those. Letting them sink in your heart that in the place of despair, let the word of God be your guide. Let the word of God be your delight. Let the word of God guide you to the hope that we have in Christ. Waiting may be hard, but it is never disappointing. Wait on the Lord, you will be delivered.